The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. For love who rules over you, simply find out if you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH on Andy, your host. Today it's time for our Friday show with Dr. Peter Hammond, so let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And just, uh, I always say, folks, that we record this on a Tuesday. We're actually recording it on a Wednesday, so it's only a couple of days before you hear it. It's a topic-based show, so it's not going to be current affairs-based. Um, the title of today's show is The Real Story of Living Life as a White Person in Africa, something that Peter is obviously well aware of. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off with today's topic? Andrew, during a debate at a university campus in the United States, Minnesota, actually, a black man declared to me in a public meeting, you could never understand what it's like to be a minority. And I could answer, actually, I do know what it's like to be a minority. I've lived in Africa my whole life. I'm a white African. In Rhodesia, whites were never more than 300,000 in a country with over 5 million black people at that time. So I grew up knowing well what it was like to be a minority. And traveling in 42 countries, working as a missionary in 38 countries, including being involved in eight wars and over the last 40 years of missionary work, seeking to serve the suffering, working behind enemy lines, assisting persecuted churches, I've been attacked I've come under fire. I've experienced aerial bombardment and rocket fire, suffered abuse and imprisonment, in many cases for no other reason than being a white person in black Africa. I know people who were targeted for torture and murder for no other reason than they were white Afrikaans Christians. I know many people who've lost their fathers, mothers, children, brothers, sisters to malicious Marxist revolutionaries and terrorists, the sort that are inspired by the Marxist rabble-rouser Julius Malemba and his kill the boer, kill the farmer message. Now, last week we paid attention to what Elon Musk drew attention to, the latest racist incitement to genocidal violence by the Marxist member of parliament, Julius Malemba, who was filmed leading 90,000 of his supporters dressed in red um, EFF berets and and T-shirts. So he had 90,000 supporters filling a stadium and he led them in participating in the zombie dance, the toy toy dance, chanting, kill the boer, kill the farmer, amandla, which means power, shoot to kill, ba-ba, ba-ba-ba. And some people asked, what are white people doing in Africa anyway? And how can you live in such a hostile, difficult environment? 
Why don't you immigrate to Australia, New Zealand, Canada, or the United States? Well, speaking for myself, I was born in Africa. I am a white African. This is my home. We have invested generations of blood, sweat, tears in building up civilization in Africa. Why must we be forced to leave the land of our fathers, the land of our birth? And for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. I was brought up in Rhodesia, which was actually a paradise. And whites were the minority, but, you know, it was quite something growing up in a land with, where everything is just excellent and clean and neat and efficient and, and safe, actually. Even during war, we were probably safer in wartime in Rhodesia than most people are in peacetime in the average multicultural city today with all the crime and violence. And growing up in Rhodesia, it was quite an experience. Um, yes, there was terrorism and there was violence, and we had to be careful about that. But to be in a country which had such strong standards and later in South Africa, a clean, safe, efficient environment where South Africa had strong Sabbath laws, no shops or cinemas allowed on Sundays, uh, where there was Bible reading and hymn singing and prayers in school at assembly every day, where uh, Christian nationalism was the um, ethos of education. In fact, the Transvaal Education Department's um, curriculum stated at the beginning, this curriculum is designed to bring every student to a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So to be in, brought up in a country where blasphemy is illegal, pornography is illegal, where uh, uh, abortion is illegal, where uh, Sabbath desecration is illegal, where blasphemy is a crime, where perversion is not an alternative lifestyle, it's a crime, where miscreation was a crime on the statute books. And I can remember as a brand new Christian in South Africa, hearing the president at that time, P.W. Boyce, called the whole nation together for prayer and repentance. It was officially a national day of prayer, repentance, and humiliation before God. And he ordered everybody in the country to go to the nearest church on the given day and seek the Lord in prayer and repentance that he might end the drought and, and be merciful to our country. And so I was a, a new Christian. I was only 18 years old. I was working at Oxford University Press in downtown Cape Town. So I got out as everyone else during lunchtime and headed towards uh, the Mudderkirk, which is the mother church of Dutch Form Church in downtown Cape Town on Adley Street. It's got a statue of Andrew Murray, the great uh, preacher uh, and author whose 200 books have never been out of print in the last 130-odd years, whose books have been translated more languages than any other in South African history. And Andrew Murray's statue is there, so this is a church he used to preach at. People poured into the church. Now, I wasn't Dutch formed. I wasn't Afrikaans, but that was the closest church. There was standing room only. People packed it out. And to hear these people sometimes kneeling on the floor, beseeching God, repenting on behalf of the nation, it was absolutely extraordinary. And the experience of being a new Christian and seeing a nation that feared God, and there was no doubt the South Africans feared God, Within two days, the heavens opened. The rain, the rain just poured down. Hmm. Absolutely extraordinary to be brought up in a country like this where every day started with Bible reading and prayer. And when I went to the military, I experienced again uh, what it was like to be a white person in Africa. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, military service was absolutely uh, required. It was not an option. We were conscripted. 
So uh, the day came uh, when I had to report at the castle in Cape Town, the oldest building in the Southern Hemisphere, 5 a.m., 2nd of July, 1979. And from a very young age, I'd been looking forward to my service in the military. My father had served six years in the um, Western Desert uh, Force, which later became the 8th Army in North Africa, Royal Artillery. My brother served in the Rhodesian Army. Uh, I was a bit young for the Rhodesian War. So this is now my turn. And I had relatives on all sides who fought all over the, the Second World War, uh, Navy, Air Force, uh, Army, all sorts of things. And so absolutely extraordinary experience for me to get my chance to serve in the Army. And so I was very um, eager to do my military service until I got converted to Christ because I got converted in 1977. Now I wanted to be a missionary. So by the time my military call-up came up, I was a little frustrated, but I thought, I'm going to waste my time being sidetracked for missions for two years. Well, I didn't need to worry, but um, you can imagine as you coming into the military and, you know, it, it was quite intimidating, hundreds of young men, all white, all um, uh, in the same brown uniforms, our hair shaved and so on. And you can imagine the experience of being dumped onto the parade ground after a long train ride and then being picked up by Bedford trucks driven across town, thrown onto the parade ground. And on uh, disembarkation, the first words I heard in the South African Defence Force, I mean, this gives you an idea of what it's like to be, or what it used to be like to be a white in Africa. Sergeant Major was shouting out, Anglicans, Assemblies of God, Baptists, Brethren. And we were divided into our denominational affiliations. All around the perimeter of the parade ground, there were tables with clocks set up, writing out the details for the roll call, the various church denominations because church attendance on Sundays in the Southern Defence Force was compulsory. It would be required to attend every interdenominational cha chapel service on the base every week, which is normally Wednesday, if I remember right. But every morning would begin with prayer parade before roll call, the raising of the flag and orders for the day. And then there would be Sunday, your church service was also compulsory. And even before we were issued with our R1 rifles, we were uh, issued with our Bibles, which was required to be with us at all times, which had a message from the Minister of Defence, P.W. Boiter, printed on the page saying, this Bible is the most important item in your essential equipment and your best weapon. And then, um, as we got uh, in the parade ground and everyone's being uh, assigned their different denominations around the parade ground, at the end of it, after about 70 denominations being read, believe it or not, there were still four men left in the middle of the uh, parade ground. And the sergeant major bellowed, well, what are you? And all of us looked with interest, wondering what on earth could there be? It sounded like every possible religious affiliation had been listed. Well, one of the four stepped forward and said in a hissed voice, atheist, sir. And the sergeant major bellowed, atheist, atheist, this is a Christian army. The communist atheist, the ANC atheist, Swapo atheist, this is a Christian army. Send them to the Pentecostals. And the sergeant major was adamant. Instead of going to a 40-minute Anglican service or one-hour Baptist service, these four atheists were now required to attend the three-hour Pentecostal services every Sunday. And they were, that's the way it was. And around our parade ground, there were a lot of motivational billboards, and somebody really liked uh, General George Patton because there were some quotes from General George Patton at 6th South African Infantry that uh, stared at us every day. One of them was, do not die for your country. Make the other poor dumb bastard die for his. Another, better to lose sweat in training than blood in battle. And there was, um, they took that very seriously, in fact, because uh, on a number of occasions, our staff sergeant proudly reminded us the Southern Defence Force lost more men in training than it did in battle. 
Well, if that was true, it didn't seem to be that much of an encouragement to me at the time, but uh, that's how serious there were lots and lots and lots of obstacle courses at great speed. Some of the people uh, died of pneumonia, some died of broken necks and arms. It was a very intensive, realistic training program, and maybe we did lose more men in training than we did in battle. We certainly followed the other dictum, train hard, fight easy. There was a General Rommel, Field Marshal Rommel slogan, better to lose uh, sweat in training than blood in battle. And sweat saves blood and brain saves both. And uh, uh, some pearls of wisdom from Urban Rommel. Well, our national servicemen were uh, soon being thinned out because the 2,000 men our base were thinned out to about 650 within a space of just a month as selection wiped out a whole lot of people who were considered not fit enough. And so the tents came down and soon we had lots of space because the whole unit uh, settled down to a much smaller, more manageable amount. And what an experience going through military training. Now, I find this interesting because I keep hearing people talking about white privilege and, uh, you know, how uh, you whites are the previously advantaged and we blacks are the previously disadvantaged. Well, that's not my experience. My experience has been that the um, the whites were the previously disadvantaged and we also the presently disadvantaged. Uh, in the old Rhodesian, old South Africa, whites were beaten with canes at school. We got caned for sometimes even just spelling and grammatical errors. Our schooling was very strict and rough. Even the prefects had corporal punishment powers. I mean, can you imagine giving a cane to a teenager like a 17-year-old and enabling him to have the power of giving corporal punishment or caning to a fellow student? Obviously, it was abused and there was a lot of bullying and um, that was part of our upbringing in Rhodesia too. Um, I was bullied so much at school, it um, it made your head spin, but it was it would never cross your mind that you could ever uh, let it be known uh, who was bullying you. It was, it was completely unacceptable. I don't know what would have happened. At school, we would sometimes bring our air rifles to school and, and end up shooting one of them in the playgrounds. And I was uh, the game ranger. I was the bunny hug, as they called him, the animal lover. And so when some st students started to bring their air rifles to school to shoot the pigeons, I said, well, I'm going to be a game ranger, so you shoot the pigeons, I will shoot you. And so we ended up having these full-out war games, um, shooting at one another with our air rifles in the school playgrounds. And if you can imagine, I mean, you can imagine what would happen in America if that happened today. The SWAT teams would be called out and the school would be locked down and the parents of this poor kid would probably be put on a terrorist watch list and never be allowed to fly again and things like that. But uh, with us, I just saw the teachers drinking, sipping their tea from the uh, staff room, which was in the first floor, looking overlooking the playground. They never intervened. They didn't seem to care that we were trying to kill one another. And maybe that was part of the upbringing that they thought. We went to all boys' schools. Uh, I never went to a co-ed school till I was in matric in South Africa because Rhodesia, we only seemed to have had boys' schools and girls' schools. If there was a co-ed school in Rhodesia, I didn't know of it. I still don't know of any. So there was a lot of bullying. And to give you one example, um, at a school assembly, a student in a row behind me was stabbing me throughout the assembly with a surgical injection and needle. Now, back in the 1970s, it was long before disposable plastic injections became common. So these were glass syringes with metal needles. They were used repeatedly and sterilized between use. And I remember my mom uh, using those um, and regularly boiling them in a special uh, sort of like tin um, uh, kettle where this would be 
to sterilize these reusable needles and, and injections. But there was in the assembly getting uh, excruciating pain and feeling the blood trickling down my legs. But so strong was our code of conduct. The boy behind me knew he could torment me and stab me as often and as hard as he likes. I would make no sign. Neither would I report him. I mean, that's how strong our code of silence was. But when the assembly finally ended, we were ordered to turn to the right and file out. We didn't have chairs in the assembly. We sat on the floor. So as we filed out, I just slipped into the row behind me, and uh, I got directly behind my tormentor, and he didn't notice that. But as we stepped into the light, into this brilliant sunlight, I tripped him down the stairs, and I saw the large hypodermic needle and syringe in his hand, it looked big enough to be used on a horse. In two strides, I was right on top of him and brought my heel down hard on his hand, so hard you could distinctly hear the glass splintering into his hands just before his ear-piercing scream echoed throughout the quadrangle. I kept walking, as did everyone else, and just as he knew he could torment me doing assembly without me uttering a word, I knew that the same code would prevent him from reporting my reaction. So it was, and you could be sure no other boys would have seen a thing. And uh, I would have liked to have heard how he had to explain what he was doing with a glass syringe and needle in his hands, mind you. But fighting bullies was part of upbringing. So my white privilege was we got caned at school, we got conscripted in the army, we got abused by the non-commissioned officers, and then we were put on the border where people were trying to kill us and throw metal at us at high speed. And we were doing all this to rescue black people from red terrorists, communist terrorists trained and helped by the Cubans and the Soviets, were kidnapping whole schools in Namibia and going north and to brutalize them into becoming terrorists or being raped for the terrorists and so on. And we, Southern Defense Force, would be rescuing them. We'd be in hot pursuit and rescuing uh, these Avambo tribesmen who had been kidnapped by Swampo or stopping Swampo planting landmines which would kill civilians. So this is our white privilege. And then when we finished uh, the military service, we came back to a society that did not appreciate us and where the white liberals from our universities were cursing us for being racist in the apartheid army. The apartheid army, by the way, I should mention, the South African army from 1970s already was being integrated. We had black units. We had integrated white and black units. And while the whites were conscripted, the blacks were volunteers. So we had units like 3-2 battalion made up of thousands of Angolan, Portuguese-speaking black Angolans who used to be communists, had come over and voluntarily joined the South African Army, 3-2 Battalion, uh, the Buffalo Battalion. Colonel Jan Breitenbach has founded them and recruited them and forged them in battle. Well, <coughs> in 3-2 Battalion, you would get whites and blacks working together, fighting together, dying together in many cases, uh, in an integrated unit. So, so much for this apartheid army. We had the same rank structures, the same pay scales, the same uniforms, and yet there's still people who call it an apartheid army. It was not whites against blacks. It was whites and blacks together against reds, against communists. Well, when I came out of uh, the, the border, I wanted to study for theological college and get into missions. And so, of course, even in apartheid South Africa in the early 1980s, I was too male and too pale to get a bursary. Blacks and coloreds would get free education, but a white had to work hard. So my white privilege, uh, to use the term of these days, was to get a six-day-a-week, eight-hour-a-night work at the local fire brigade. And I worked my way through uh, being at theological college. I did the midnight shift, sometimes came to college smelling like smoke, and 
uh, it was quite something burning the candle at both ends, getting no sleep at night and uh, uh, struggling through class and work at, during the day. And just again to give a, f a feel of, of what it's like being a white in Africa, I remember many a time having a student come up to me saying, Peter, I've got a assignment due on Monday. Can you take my sermon on Sunday? Well, I never turned down a service on Sunday. And I might have had three or four assignments for Monday, but I've never turned down an opportunity for Sunday ministry. I did, a, in one year, I did 98 sermons in churches uh, in one year uh, while I was studying at college, showing that considering there's only 52 months in a, in a year, sorry, 52 weeks in a year, and therefore uh, 52 Sundays, that means I had Sunday and morning and Sunday evening services most Sundays of, of the year. And that was normal. Uh, while still doing more subjects than anyone else. At our college, the average student, meaning black and colored student, was doing four or five subjects a semester. I chose to never do less than eight subjects a semester, and once even did nine subjects a semester. I want to get to college quickly, and I was paying for it. I didn't want to be there any longer than I need to. I want to get back to the mission field. And so uh, that's my white privilege. We had to work for what was given free to others, and we had to pay lots and lots of taxes, so that black people could get the free health, free education, and the free medical that we had to pay for ourselves. So that's the truth. When they speak about the previously advantaged and the previously disadvantaged, the fact is the whites always were the previously disadvantaged, in a sense that we were the ones that had to pay the taxes and and uh, to fund black people getting things free, and the black people got things generally more free, and they had all kinds of privileges and advantages we didn't have, such as us getting conscripted and uh, black people not getting conscripted to the military and uh, their education was not as brutal as ours they didn't get caned as often as we did uh, the the strictness in the white schools in Rhodesia and in South Africa were far more intense um, I don't think there was anything to compare with that in the average black school because uh, they uh, had different standards entirely I once went to our college principal and said do we all get marked at the same standard and the principal said oh no 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 what surprised me, he said, I mark you on the percentage of what you're capable of. So this explained why some people could produce a handwritten um, dog's breakfast of an assignment and get a good mark, whereas I could produce flawless, well-documented, footnoted, typed-up materials in good presentation, uh, which included some serious research and uh, would not get um, much higher than, than what another person that did something slovenly. The teachers, the principals, marked people on what they thought that they were capable of, which meant there was always a tremendous advantage given to uh, black and colored students. And I've seen it as someone who's lectured many, many, many schools and cultures and done a lot of marking. We would never mark the black and colored students as strictly as we mark the white students. So you can see, well, that's another white privilege and black privilege. White privileges, you get abused and you get to pay more and you get to suffer more for what other people get free and they get advantages for. So that's part of it. But again, these questions that we get, um, why don't you immigrate to Australia, New Zealand, Canada or United States? Well, to speak for myself, what is attractive about moving to the Orwellian thought police controlled lockdown lunacy, masquerade madness, salvation by vaccination, COVID cult, prison islands of Australia and New Zealand, or to Justin Trudeau's woke, politically correct, 1984, socialist, transgender, police state of Canada. During the 2020 lockdown lunacy, when the BLM, or Baal, 
Lucifer and Moloch, burn, loot, murder mobs were looting and burning shopping centers and police stations in America. I wrote to some of my South African friends who had moved to America. So how are you enjoying your peace and safety far from race riots in Africa? How's that working out for you? And despite the dangers and difficulties of living in Africa, the fact is we still enjoy more religious freedom, more freedom of speech, more freedom of conscience in South Africa than our friends and cousins in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the USA and the UK. A lot more freedom of religion. I've got American and British missionaries and evangelists in South Africa saying we could never do the kind of open air preaching, prison ministry, school ministry in Britain or America that we can do here in South Africa. And another thing I think may be news to many people, whites have been part of the history of Africa for more than centuries. In the case of North Africa, whites have been part of history for millenniums. The white Africans in North Africa included Cleopatra and the Carthaginians and the early church fathers, Oregon, Cyprian, Ignatius, Tertullian, Athanasius, Augustine. These were all whites in North Africa. The early church fathers were most Af- most of them from North Africa, and they were, they were white North Africans. So this idea that Africa is only for the Africans, well, bear in mind that Africans can be white. Today, you've got an Arabic North Africa, you've got a black Central Africa, and you've got a lot of whites in the Southern Africa. And that's really three Africas. To say you can't have white Africans is like saying you can't have a black American, or which I'm sure that people would shout you down if you suggested that. And whites have been part of Southern Africa's history for over 350 years. So our founding father of South Africa, Jan van Riebeck, arrived on the 6th of April, 1652 in Table Bay. And his first act was to kneel down and pray this prayer in the shadow of Table Mountain. O gracious, most merciful God and heavenly Father, in your divine majesty you have saved us and called us to guard the affairs of this Dutch East India Company in this place. To this end we've gathered here together in your name. May the decisions we take further maintain justice and amongst these wild and uncivilized people, may your true and perfect Christian teachings be established and spread to the honor and praise of your holy name and the prosperity of your people. Without the merciful help of Almighty God, we are powerless. Therefore, we praise you, most merciful Father, and ask that you will stand by and support us with your fatherly wisdom and understanding. Preside over our gatherings. Lift our hearts with your fatherly wisdom and uh, lift our hearts from all wrong passions and misunderstanding and bestial lust. May they be removed from us. Cleanse our hearts. Fix our minds so that our actions uh, may no other principles or motives be apparent than the magnification, honor of your most holy name, so that you can best serve our Lord and Master and acting (coughs) (coughs) worthily, may the gospel spread, may the reformed faith spread throughout this dark continent. And he concludes with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, when I was converted to Christ, I was called to missions at the same time. And the first missionary to visit our congregation, Pilots Baptist, was Francis Grimm, the founder of Hospital Christian Fellowship. He had authored a book, An Ideology for South Africa, which I'd read. The book cover depicted a rugged wooden cross being held up by three hands, a white hand, a black hand, and a brown hand. And behind uh, this cross was the orange, white, and blue of the South African flag and Table Mountain. And the message was, God has placed us at the foot of Africa to take the light of the gospel of Christ throughout Africa. Well, that message resonated within my heart. It has inspired my 44 years of missionary service throughout Africa. It is true to the prayer of Jan van Riebeck 350 years ago. Well, by God's grace, since then, I've smuggled hundreds of thousands of Bibles 
and Christian books in over 100 languages into some of the most remote, dangerous, restricted access areas and war zones in Africa. During this time, it's been my privilege to train hundreds of school teachers, help them establish over 100 schools in remote, restricted access areas such as in Sudan, and providing many hundreds of schools with thousands of Christian textbooks, and establishing and stocking medical clinics and hospitals in war-torn countries. We trained the first medics and chaplains for the Sudanese People's Liberation Army. We delivered the first paramedic bags for the medics. My wife sewed the first uh, paramedic armbands with the Red Cross on uh, for the medics of the SPLA. My wife sewed the first 50 of the berets with the SPLA chaplain's badge that I designed uh, for the chaplains of the SPLA. And we delivered and trained these medics and chaplains. We delivered container shipments of medicines, medical equipment to the battlefields of Sudan. I donated a four-wheel drive field ambulance to the believers in South Sudan and delivered tons of food and agricultural tools and other relief to Christians suffering as far field as the living mountains of Sudan and Zimbabwe. Now I mention this because so many people say whites have no business in Africa and whites should leave Africa and the whites have always oppressed Africa and the missionaries have been oppressing and exploiting the people of Africa. Well, that's just not true. My parents said that they were encouraged by their governments in Europe to come to Africa in order to lift up the standards of the people to to help create more jobs and to help civilize and advance Africa. And interesting, the same governments that encouraged my parents to come to Africa uh, demonized them a few years later for being colonials in Africa. They were there expressly to help the black people. My parents always taught me to respect black people and to uh, help them and to have, we had this inbuilt sense of the white man's burden. If someone came to your door and requested something, you went and helped them. Now, when my wife, who came from Austria, moved to Africa, as she was horrified at these grown men coming to the front door gate and begging for one thing or another. And she'd be very unsympathetic and, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself, go and work and so on. But, you know, I, I'd have to correct her and say, but no, in, in Africa we do this. And uh, she would at first laugh at me at, you know, you softy and you... Um, uh, you being manipulated here. Uh, but um, in the end, she grew to do that too, taking them food, uh, making them sandwiches, um, handing over um, things that would help providing them with baby clothes or other clothes or shoes, sometimes my shoes for that matter. I remember coming back and saying, hey, that man outside the gate looked like he's wearing shoes just like mine. She said, they are your shoes. And this is the way it is in Africa. We are pre-programmed to want to help black people who are in need who come and where they are begging at the traffic lights, I regularly go shopping for no other reason than to buy things that I can give people at traffic lights who are begging. So it's a normal thing being a white person Africa that at the traffic lights there's some people coming and they might have a sign on a signboard or be seeking to uh, get your sympathy one way or the other. Some of them have hard luck stories. Uh, some of them are actually drug addicts. I know this because I've spent a lot of time speaking to these people and getting to know them. Some of them came from Rwanda and were, in fact, some of the inter mass murderers who had been killing people in the Rwandan genocide. And a whole of them actually ended up in our suburb in Cape Town. And they were just the same age that uh, they would have been about 13, 14 at the time of genocide. Those were the main uh, mass murderers in Rwanda, uh, early teens in the inter And uh, here they were in Cape Town. And are you, which tribe are you, Hutu or Tutsino, we Hutu? They were the tribe that did the massacres. And are you going back to Rwanda? No, no way they're going back to Rwanda. Well, why not? Because the genocide's ended and the David defeated Goliath and the Tutsi minority are now running the country, the country's safe. Well, these people were part of the Hutu majority and 
part of the mass murderers, so they can't go back. So I've got in my car bags of tins of food, uh, bags uh, of peanuts and raisins, sometimes um, uh, loaves of bread, which I hand out uh, at different traffic lights, and it's normal. We don't feel we can give money, and that would be irresponsible because a lot of these people are picking up traffic lights might turn it into vice. Cigarettes and drugs being very popular, but not only. There's also they, some of them waste money on gambling and lotto machines and so on. So I'll give them food, but I won't give them money. And it's very normal to have South Africans who, who think that it is our duty to help complete strangers with food and so on. And uh, that's something I do very normally. And uh, for close to four decades, I've delivered boxes with love to pensioners, prisoners, pastors, and Marxists in Zimbabwe. We put together a box which is filled with about 40 to 50 different items, which can be tins of food and toothpaste and soap and salt and sugar and um, energy bars and vitamins and Vaseline, a whole lot of things that medical and, and food stuffs that will help them along with the New Testament with some gospel booklets. And these boxes with love we deliver to pensioners, prisoners, and pastors in Zimbabwe who are suffering. To mobilize more missionaries for our great cause of winning Africa for Christ, I then developed the Great Commission course, which has attracted participants from as far afield as Australia and America and Britain and Botswana, from Congo and Canada, from Ghana and Germany, from Romania and Russia, from Namibia and Nigeria, from Sudan and Switzerland, from Zambia and Zimbabwe, Hundreds of dedicated Christians have gone through our intensive Great Commission course, body, mind, and spirit training, many of whom have gone on to be missionaries far and wide, including to Albania and Bulgaria, to the Czech Republic, to Brazil, to Red China, to South Korea, to Japan, Ukraine, Serbia, Jordan, <coughs> even further afield. You'd be amazed how many South African missionaries are worldwide. And we're inspired by a uniquely South African character here, Volrad Voltemard. Volrad Voltemard uh, was a man synonymous with courage and self-sacrifice in South African history. Back in 1773, <coughs> all winter night the storm was raging. There were five ships in Table Bay being buffeted all night, pounded by the turbulent waves. The Cape used to be known as the Cape of Storms for good reason. There were bright streaks of lightning <coughs> lifting up the imposing Table Mountain and the very little settlement at Cape Town. Few of the sailors got any sleep that night as wooden creaks, wooden ships creaked and groaned and strained at the anchors. Captain Lumeron was concerned that his ship, the younger Thomas, <coughs> would... <coughs> Peter, do you want to just, if you take a minute, I'm just going to, um, I'm going to uh, just take a breath and take a drink i'm just gonna let the audience know that a lot of the material that peter is um talking about today i'm familiar with because i read the history 40-year history of frontline fellowship which also includes some personal history of uh, of peter uh, in the frontline uh, book uh, on the front line, the uh, 40-year history of Frontline Fellowship. And that is available at uh, the Frontline Fellowship website. So please have a look at that. And also please um, familiarise yourself with the Frontline Fellowship North America website. That's the one that's in capitals in the post for our show as of last week. And this will continue. This is a new endeavour designed mainly <laughs> for people who are based in the West, who are either based in... Um, 
you know, well, throughout the West, not just North America, but it's a good place to go if you're in Europe. It's probably a better place to go to support Frontline Fellowship than the South African website. So, Peter, are you uh, ready to continue? Yes, I apologize for my coughing spree. That's okay. uh, But um, we, it, we're just coming out of a very rough winter in Cape Town and we're entering into our pollen season as we're approaching spring. I always get some kind of hay fever and that's, I think, what's afflicting me now. Well, Dionga Thomas, with 270 men, women and children board, broke up and it had valuable cargo, but an intensive storm just after midnight, the 1st of June, 1773, the captain ordered the ship's cannon fire to warn the people on the shore they needed help. And just after five in the morning, Dionga Thomas broke loose from its last anchor, began to be forced onto jagged rocks of the Salt River mouth. With a loud crash, the stricken ship broke in half. Passengers and sailors began falling into the raging sea, and many drowned attempting to swim to the shore. Only the strongest swimmers could survive in that terrible current of the river mouth. Well, soon a platoon of 30 Dutch soldiers came marching up, and they'd been ordered to prevent looting and to assist survivors of the shipwreck. The officer in charge warned the people who'd gathered the shore, don't go near the turbulent waters. Some had come to watch, some had come to help, and others were opportunists who wanted to loot cargo when it was washed on shore. But then an old man on a large black horse rode up. He was 65 years old, Volrad Voltemard. Uh, he was born in Hesse Skumburg in Germany. He had migrated to the Dutch settlement at the southern tip of Africa. He worked as a dairy farmer, and his horse's name was Vonk or Sparkle. He threw off his coat and shirt, took a rope, and then galloped into the freezing waters of the turbulent sea. He and his horse reached the ship, threw out the rope, made for shore, towing two men behind. When he reached the shore, the bystanders hurried to help the survivors out of the sewer. And without a word, Volrad turned his horse around, plunged back into the icy sea. Seven times he rode and swam out to the ship, and he rescued 14 people. And this took several agonizing hours. The sea was icy cold, the waves were mountainous, and the current was very strong. And the bystanders and soldiers insisted he could not carry on. His horse was too tired. The storm was too intense. But the cries from the ship spurred Volrad Voltemog on. Once more, he said, and exhausted, he plunged back into the sea, and it was an eighth time. He went through the wild waves to the stricken Dionga Thomas, and this time six men leapt from the ship, grabbed the horse's mane, bridle, and tail, and saddle. It was too much. Volrad Voltemod and his gallant horse plunged beneath the waves under the weight of so many panicking people. They all sank beneath the waves and they were drowned. Well, in honor of Volrad Voltemod's unselfish sacrifice and his bravery, the Dutch East India Company named the ship after him, De Held. Voltemard, or the hero of Voltemard. And the Republic of South Africa named um, the highest award for civilian bravery in the country, the Volrod Voltemard. And his name was given to a number of streets and suburbs in South Africa. One of the most powerful salvage tugs in the world was built in 1976, the the, uh, Volrod Voltemard. And we've got a statue in my suburb where I live in Pinelands in Cape Town, uh, the Volrod Voltemard statue, uh, showing him uh, on his horse, plunging through the waves to rescue more people. And to Christians, Volrad Voltemard is an example of dedication to saving the lost, which I think many of us in South Africa feel called to. Many of us in Africa, specifically because we want to win Africa for Christ. And you know the hymn, 
Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave. Weep over the erring one, lift up the fallen. Tell him of Jesus, the mighty to save. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful, Jesus will save. Rescue the perishing, duty demands it. Strength for the labor the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way, patiently win them. Tell a poor wanderer a savior has died. And over and over we told, rescue those being led away to death, hold back those staggering towards slaughter. And this is what many of us are called to. And I know many people in other parts of the world are very hostile to whites in Africa. What are whites doing in Africa? Well, many of us in Africa to win people to Christ and to help. Now, it, this is a hostile continent. Even as I was growing up, I was well aware of the Mau Mau in Kenya. In 1950s Kenya, the notorious Mau Mau organized occultic ceremonies, human sacrifices, in the name of Uhuru, which means freedom in Swahili. The Mau Mau tortured and murdered white farmers and their family members. And in the 1960s, there was the Simba in the Congo. Hundreds of white settlers and Catholic priests and nuns and missionaries were subjected to satanic rituals and torturous murder by communist-inspired witch doctors who were leading the Simba mobs. So even at a very young age, I was aware Africa could be a very dangerous place for white people. We knew the fate of the four-trekkers like Peter Teeth, who after delivering the cattle requested and receiving a signed treaty from the king, was massacred by the Zulu under the orders of the tyrant Dingon. The Boer trek leader Peter Teeth, along with his son and a hundred of his followers, were persuaded to leave their rifles outside the kraal uh, of Dingan Stats Ongongongluvu, and Dingan had them all killed uh, because they were disarmed. And the massacres that followed the families safely banked on the Blokrans and, and um, the Vienna rivers in the Till, these are things would remind us of the fact that Africa can be a very dangerous place. Well, every Rhodesian knew of the Shangani patrol of Major Alan Wilson. 34 men who were cut off and surrounded by thousands of Madibili warriors during the 1893 war. When they ran out of ammunition, they sang God Save the Queen, they shook hands, they prayed the Lord's Prayer, and they fought to the last man. They fought with knives, they used their rifles as clubs. After the battle, the Madibili warriors saluted them and reported, they looked like boys, but they fought like lions. These were men of men, and their fathers were men before them. We want to make peace before their fathers come for revenge. And so the only defeat that I know that won a war, uh, the Shangani Patrol, we knew of the murder of farmers and their families and of missionaries and of whole congregations at the hands of communist terrorists and Mugabe's Zanu PF terrorists in Rhodesia. When teachers took us on school outings in Rhodesia, we drove on roads endangered by landmines and ambushes. Our school teachers carried rifles. It wasn't uncommon to see mothers in shops pushing baby carriages or prams or shopping trolleys with a revolver holstered on their belt and a rogue gun, 9mm submachine gun slung over their shoulder. Farmhouses were pretty fortified. Thatched roofs were replaced with corrugated iron because of the danger of petrol bombs and tracer bullets igniting flat thatched roofs. We were taught in the South Gun Infantry, you have never lived until you have almost died. And for those who fight for it, life is a flavor the protected will never know. And so in my 44 years of being a missionary in Africa, <coughs> I've experienced being under fire. I've experienced being imprisoned, uh, being interrogated and tortured in communist countries like Mozambique. And when Zambia was under dictatorship of Kohonda, I experienced that there. 
in Sudan, we've come under artillery and aerial bombardments. And uh, we know what it's like to live in Africa. It's, it's often a dangerous place, but but we love Africa. We love Africa for many reasons. We've got the fastest animal in the world, this cheetah. We've got the largest animal in the world, the elephant. We have the tallest animal in the world, the giraffe. Uh, we live in an amazing continent with amazing wildlife. And where I live in Cape Town, we can swim with penguins when we go out <coughs> paddling. We have seals around us, and sometimes <coughs> we can even see the whales and dolphins not far away. And uh, it's an extraordinary thing to live in a wild continent and to see how God is impacting and transforming lives. And yes, there are dangers. When I've stayed with farms, anywhere in South Africa, every night is preparing for battle. The family lays out their weapons, their shotguns, their fire, fighting equipment, things like this. They've got their uh, different radio um, and walkie-talkies. And some of these farms have such a, a chain that you've got to set the alarm and wake up every hour or two to be able to inform the others that you're still alive. Otherwise, they'll send out a uh, um, security uh, vehicle to come and check what's going on at your farm because they know people can be getting tortured uh, for hours. And so they've got a system in many of these farms that every two hours throughout the night you must report in or they will send a, a vehicle to come and, and check that you are all right. And that people live like this. They have extra security gates within the home separating the sleeping quarters from the rest of the area in case people break in. The windows covered with burglar bars. Uh, even my own home, every window is covered with burglar bars, every door with security gates. We've got extraordinary security measures, high walls, and at the back of our property, we've got spikes. On the corners, I've got some razor wire. Uh, in the front, I've placed thorn bushes in key places to make it very hard for people to get over the walls. We use cactuses and high walls, a raw town fence, um, gate that I padlock every night to make it harder for people to break in. Uh, we have a system going. My children, even my daughters, need to understand uh, some of the way how it works. When I was having young children, I would make sure that the babysitters had access to a firearm and were firearm trained. I would not dare go on a date with my wife without having a babysitter who was quite capable of using a firearm effectively, because you could be attacked. And this is part of being a white person in Africa, that you're living in condition orange. Um, orange and red often, you're never down to white or yellow. It's just continual you could be attacked. This could be a last day on earth. There's all sorts of things that can happen. So just to give one example that helps one see how it can be in South Korea, it's quite extraordinary. Um, I was mugged within 10 minutes in Durban some time ago. <coughs> it had been a very full day of ministry at Quest Mission in KwaZulu. And then I drove through to Durban to speak at a African Christian Democratic Party Annual General Conference. Well, it was off, after 11 p.m. when I returned to the hotel room they checked me into. It was the sweltering hot summer night and the air conditioning was not working. So I put on my short sandals and T-shirt, head out for some fresh air and a walk along Durban's famous Golden Mile uh, along the beachfront, Marine Parade. Well, I'd not even crossed Wall Street and uh, West Street and I was walking across this very broad road, and I could see four Nigerians positioning themselves to intercept me once I arrived on the other side of this one-way road. 
The leader was a very large man and he was waving a silver pistol in my face to going, <laughs> we're mugging you. Well, my right hand was already in the pocket of one of my shorts, gripping the handle of my Volta PPK 9mm pistol. No, you're not, I said, and I thrust my 9mm pistol firmly into his face. The mugger was waving his pistol in such a lax way that my swift movement took him by surprise. My forefinger was already on the trigger, my thumb had already slipped the safety catch off, and as my would-be assailant backed off rapidly, I turned to left and right, aiming at the other muggers, but they were gone already. They'd moved so fast it was hard to believe they'd been there only seconds before. So I replaced my Volta PPK back in my pocket. I continued my evening stroll down Durban's famous beachfront. And it wasn't long before I became aware I was being followed. Looking review mirrors and reflections on windows of parked cars and vans on Marine Parade, it was evident three black men were shadowing me. Now these were different men from the ones who tried to ambush me. When I crossed the road, they crossed shortly behind me, and there was no doubt they were intentionally stalking me because I was walking very briskly, but they were gaining on me, and it's not normal to see black people walking fast in Africa anyway, but uh, for them to be gaining on someone walking as briskly as me, they must have been jogging somewhat and had every intention of trying to catch up with me. Well, my right hand was in my pocket. I was firmly gripping the vault of PPK. My thumb was on a safety catch, my forefinger at the side of the trigger, and as I looked over my shoulder, I could see two of the men right behind me, and one had a knife in his hand, quite a large knife. So I spun around, drew my pistol, aimed right at his face. The would-be assailant and his accomplice did some fancy footwork, much like a ballerina pirouette, and ran away. I lowered my pistol, but kept alert as the third man in the group had been struggling behind him, continued walking up to me. He was laughing. <coughs> I told them you were too alert, he said, but they said they would take a chance. Are you Swedish, he asked. No, I said, I'm South African. And he said, we normally try to avoid South Africans. We actually focus on foreigners. They're not armed, which is true. Tourists would not be armed, but I was not Swedish. This character was so cheerfully open, you would have thought he was involved in the tourism business, which in a way he was. We walked for some way talking amicably, and during my hour-long stroll along Durban Beachfront, I saw no police. Until on my return, close to my hotel, I saw by the Durban Municipal Swimming Pool, outside the Milky Lane, where there was a lot of um, floodlights illuminating the park area, there were several police vehicles and well-armed, over 14 police with body armor, and asked, had there been some trouble? Was there right? I mean, this looked quite extraordinary. And they said, no, they were just on patrol. I mentioned in 10 minutes, I'd experienced two muggings, but had not seen any policemen anywhere on the Marine Parade Golden Mile. Well, the police commented they'd stopped for coffee and donuts. Well, I expressed surprise that all 14 had stopped for refreshments at the same spot in the same place, without any policeman visible along the whole crime-ridden Marine Parade Tourist Boulevard. So evidently, tourists and citizens need to be able to defend themselves, because muggers feel free to operate throughout the tourist mecca of, for example, Durban Beachfront. Criminals prefer unarmed victims. And when seconds count, the police are minutes away. Armed citizens save lives. When the time comes that we must act decisively and protect our loved ones, we need to pray that God will make it accurate. And being a white in Africa has included remembering how it was like to live in paradise uh, when we were under attack by communist terrorism and when we were being sanctioned by our Western allies. It always struck me as strange that my father fought all six years in the Eighth Army for the allies, but when we came under attack, 
Britain put sanctions on us. We were banned from the Olympics, even the paraplegic Olympics. And Britain was giving military aid to our, to our enemies and to the terrorists. The initial terrorists attacking us were not using AK-47s and uh, Soviet uh, weapons. They were using Thompson submachine guns, Lee-Enfield rifles, Sten guns, and Mills grenades, which they probably got from the Zambian government, who got them from Britain. And so right from the beginning, we were aware of the refugees fleeing the Congo, the carnage in the Congo. And uh, at that time, what was very popular was a man from uncle. Uh, man from uncle films had a pre glasnost glasnost where he had this Russian secret agent and this American secret agent who were working together under the UN to keep the world safe for democracy. Well, that was a fiction in the, in the cinemas. But in the classroom next to me were refugees from the Congo, children whose parents had been attacked, whose homes had been bombed and looted, whose shopping centers and churches, schools had been bombed by even the United Nations forces. And so they didn't think the UN were the heroes. And early on, I had to understand the difference between <coughs> the media, <coughs> the media and um, reality. Interestingly enough, I had a um, member of parliament as my history teacher in high school, Milton High. And so he said to me, beware the victor's version. You know, the British are lying to us today about Rhodesia. So why would you trust what they say about the First World War, the Second World War, anything else for that matter? Wartime propaganda morphs into peacetime textbooks. Beware the victor's version. Never believe the textbooks. Think outside the box. Do independent research. And so that was quite extraordinary. Uh, we saw people who were refugees from Mozambique and Angola, white people who had lost everything, everything being stolen, looted, and that. Black governments that were now actually red governments, communist governments, they'd been abandoned. <coughs> <coughs> so we endured. We can look to wind it up now, uh, Peter. Just um, just get your breath, and then because we've we've got the uh, full show anyway, so we can always extend it next time. Just uh, I know you're struggling a bit today. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, we've endured hate campaigns and propaganda and terrorism in the past um, from our allies. And as Ian Smith said, we were never beaten by our enemies. We were betrayed by our friends. I think that's an experience you've seen often. Well, our church is attacked by terrorists like St. James. <coughs> Farm murders, tortures, terrorism, anti-white racism, calls for genocide to the whites. And we've had people explain that you could be the last white generation. And in fact, they are working quite effectively to get rid of whites. We are an endangered species in Africa. <coughs> but you can see whites worldwide are also endangered species through abortion, pornography, sterilization, LGBTQ, gay agenda, transgenderism, cult, genital mutilation, and um, mastectomies for women and um, castrations for males and this transgender surgery and this whole insanity. What we're seeing is more and more people are not having healthy lives and marriages and they're effectively being sterilized, which is the goal of the 
World Economic Forum Klaus Schwab crowd who want to bring the population of the world way down. And then, of course, there's cross-racial marriages, uh, which also are demographic suicide, and the mass migrations and invasions of people from third world countries and what they call the Great Replacement. And I've seen it in my country where we've gone to the point of being a minority in our own country. Even Cape Town, where whites used to be the majority, we're now the minority. And their goal is (coughs) the (coughs) extermination (coughs) of white Christian civilization and extinction is the goal. So the greatest act of resistance is to be a straight white male Christian, father and husband, to have large families and homogeneous uh, communities. We need to know our history. We need to know our roots. We need to honor our ancestors. And young men need to get married and have lots of children. We can resist the new world order, new world disorder, by working for a back to the Bible reformation and pray for spiritual revival. And by investing in the future. My wife and I had four children (coughs) whom we home educated ensuring that they get a Bible-based, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-led education. And we taught all our children to know how to fight. And they've all done martial sports, which included karate and kickboxing and archery and historic European martial arts, sword fighting, uh, fencing, and, of course, shooting everything from pistols, rifles, shotguns. Uh, We want to be sure. In Africa, you can't survive unless you're willing uh, to have martial sports and be alert. Uh, My one son was mugged just this last Saturday, and this is a reality. In South Africa, you don't just know people who've been attacked. Most people have been victims of crime in our country. We're living in a very dangerous time and place, but I don't think it's just in Africa. You can see that white Christians are being targeted worldwide, and uh, we need to be alert. We need to know what the facts are so that we won't be guilt manipulated by those people who are trying to give false, fictitious pictures of white guilt and of being the previously advantaged. Well, I don't think we ever, ever were the previously advantaged, and uh, we were the previously disadvantaged, and we're the presently disadvantaged. And we should not be embarrassed and ashamed to speak up for our people. And effectively, whites are a minority already in the world, and apparently they're heading that way in America too. I believe that and London is now uh, a majority non-English population. And you've got Muslim mayors in many parts of England, Uh, you've got a Hindu prime minister in England. So interesting that so much of Europe is being colonized by the third world. You go through the third world and try and find people of other races running those countries. Can you imagine Japan being run by a Korean or a Chinese male prime minister or something like that? Could you imagine a prime minister of India uh, being a white person or something like that? It's, It's unthinkable. And so... Right now, we need to know our history. And isn't it amazing that if you try to speak up for the most persecuted minority, they call you a racist. And that's these people who are happy to support those who sing racist, genocidal hate speech, zombie dances like kill the boar, kill the farmer. And now if you try and speak up for the most targeted, hated and disparaged people group on earth, white males in particular, uh, suddenly they want to call you a racist. Well, it seems people screaming racist the most are the worst racists of all. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And what I'm going to do is in the post for the show, I've uh, got the show images, the cover 
of the autobiography, as I call it, of Frontline Fellowship, the uh, first 40 years. And I'm actually, funnily enough, this uh, show has come along at an interesting time because the next four shows uh, of the traditional Christian message that goes out on Sunday is me reading from your accounts of being imprisoned and tortured in African countries alongside fellow missionaries when you were doing your work uh, for Christ there. So that's going to sort of go hand in hand with this. Um, So if you get on to the uh, Frontline Fellowship, I think the main uh, website, the South Africa website first on that book, uh, is, is, is that supplied at all through the North American website, Peter, or not? Yes, <clears throat> if you go into Frontline Mission in a short for North America dot org website, there will be a link to the main Frontline Mission essay dot org website where we've got most of our articles, audio visual links, and, and projects, including Give Send Go uh, ways of supporting different ministries and so on. But yes, if you want to order books, Frontline Mission in a short for Frontline Mission North America dot org has a lot of our books like the Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ and Faith Under Fire in Sudan, Slavery, Terrorism, Islam books. Those you can order straight from North America, which we've pre-positioned there, make it a lot cheaper, a lot easier, a lot more cost-effective and quicker to receive than if we tried to ship it out from Cape Town. Excellent. Before we go, could you please let the audience know uh, how they can uh, contact you? My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za. So that's P-T-E-R at F-R-O-N-T-L-I-N-E dot O-R-G dot Z-A or in America that says Z-A Peter at frontline.org dot Z-A or Z-A and uh, that's uh, that's my email on Facebook you'll see Peter Hammond and Frontline Fellowship very much involved in a lot of active posts so if you're on Facebook look for us as well thank you so much Andrew for your prayers and support and encouragement Thank you, Peter. And just one last uh, to close out the show. Peter mentioned about uh, a National Day of Repentance in South Africa many years ago under the Bota government. So I just typed that in. It was something I just wanted to look up um, on Google. And I typed in when South Africa had a National Day of Repentance. And the top uh, results are all from christianaction.org.za or .org.za. National Repentance, Africa Christian Action, has been organising National Days of Repentance in South Africa for the last 19 years. Every 1st of of February, that's my birthday, funnily enough, uh, Africa Christian Action. And of course, if you look at the post for our show, you will see that christianaction.org.za is one of Dr. Peter Hammond's websites. Anything that you'd like to say about that before we... Go, Peter. Well, yes, of course, biblically, it should be the government, the political leaders that call for National Day of Prayer and Repentance, but because they've failed to do so in over 30 years, we've seen it necessary to call for National Days of Repentance ourselves, and that normally is when we march to Parliament on the anniversary of the legalization of abortion in South Africa. So we're still calling for National Days of Repentance, but that's not as effective as when it's the President of the country or the King or Queen in the case of Britain calling for the whole nation to repent, which is the way it should be done. Still, if the higher magistrate fails, the lesser magistrates are obligated to do what we can. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for joining us today on a show entitled (coughs) The Real Story of Living Life as a White Person in Africa. 
Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I'll, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. Until then, folks, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day, and bye for now. <laughs>